0: You're listening to the Silicon Valley Podcast. On today's show, we sit down with Steve Hoffman, or Captain Hoff, as he's called in Silicon Valley. He is the chairman and CEO of Founderspace, one of the world's leading startup accelerators. He's also a venture investor, serial entrepreneur, and author of several award winning books. These include Make Elephants Fly, Survive in a Startup, The Five Forces. On today's show, we talk about possible repercussions taking friends and family investments into your startup. In a company's development, when do patents matter? What are the qualities a startup should look for in a lawyer? And how does one judge the commitment level of their team members? Are you 110% in or not? This is much more on today's episode of the Silicon Valley Podcast. Now let's start this episode. Enjoy. Welcome to the Silicon Valley Podcast with your host, Sean Flynn, who interviews famous entrepreneurs, venture capitalists, and leaders in tech. Learn their secrets and see tomorrow's world today. Steve, thank you for taking the time to be on the Silicon Valley Podcast. Now, we had you on the show about a year ago. In fact, it was such a good episode, we broke it down to two parts. I had a lot of great feedback from a lot of our listeners asking questions, asking for introductions. I mean, they loved your interview. They loved your book. But you have another book out now that, I mean, we're going to talk about. But before that, before finding out everything you're doing now, catch us a little bit up on this last year, things that happened in your life, you know, what you're working on.
1: So this last year has been pretty incredible. Being trapped with COVID gave me a lot of time to write. It also gave me a lot of time to think and had to figure out how to work remotely. But it's been great. So we're still going strong at my company, Founderspace. We are operating incubators all over the world and working with startups. We've done a lot of it remotely. But now that COVID is subsiding, I am back on the road. I am traveling. I'm meeting people in person. I've been vaccinated. It's very refreshing.
0: You just mentioned Founderspace is growing. Can you talk a little bit about the history of Founderspace? and maybe some plans for the future?
1: So Founderspace has been around for a long time. We've been around since 2011. We have been working with entrepreneurs globally. So we do a lot in, here in Silicon Valley, but we also work in China. We have five incubators in major cities in China. We work all across Asia and all across Europe. In the future, I want to really push hard into places like Africa, I think there's a lot of potential there. I'm collaborating with some VCs there. I'm very excited about giving Africans the capital they need to actually tap their home markets. A lot of these markets are really, are potentially huge, hundreds of millions of people, and they are as yet, we're just scratching the surface. India's already on fire. We see that. Southeast Asia is in terms of startups, it has really hit its stride. We are going to continue to push out. I want to do more in Eastern Europe, potentially in other locations, especially
0: underserved locations. That's fantastic. I mean, especially because this show, we do have an audience in Cameroon. We do have an audience in Nigeria. We interviewed Thelma Hayek, Nicole Yembras, some prominent VCs. Also, we have a small audience in Kenya. So everyone out there listening. Please feel free to reach out for Steve Hoffman here. Your networks out there, I'm sure, can benefit mutually. With that, I want to dive right into the book. I read it, I loved it. I got a lot of questions for you. First question is Most people say the first money in should be friends and family. But in your book, you actually warn against this and say there could possibly be repercussions. Can you go into a little bit more detail about this advice? So when
1: I wrote Surviving a Startup, I wrote it. From my personal experience, I have done three venture-funded startups, two bootstrap startups, and I have mentored and coached hundreds of entrepreneurs in their company. So I see what happens. And yes, friends and family money is often the way you start. And I don't say don't take friends and family money, but I tell entrepreneurs, be careful. Think twice before you take the money of friends and family, because the question is, do you want them to remain your friends and family? People are always a really happy to invest. They read the same articles you read. They think you're going to be the next Google, the next Facebook, the next Twitter, the next unicorn of some type. They believe in you. If they're your friends, they want to help you. If they're your family, they believe in you. And they are willing to give you money. But that doesn't mean they don't have any expectation. In the end, if you lose their money, things change. You know, Uncle Joe can be a really great guy until you lose Uncle Joe's life savings or even several thousand dollars from Uncle Joe. That can completely change the relationship. Now, they don't understand how hard it is to do a startup. This is why I wrote the book, Surviving a Startup. If you are an entrepreneur, you know how crazy it is. You know how uncertain things are. Everything is out of control at the beginning. And startups are extremely fragile. It doesn't take much to squash a startup because you don't have many resources and you're living hand to foot, day by day, very, very difficult. So if you're going to take friends and family money, I have just one piece of advice. When you go to them, tell them there is over a 90% chance they will not get their money back you know, they are going to Vegas, (laughs) they are literally putting the money down on a roulette wheel and spinning it. And they probably won't get it back. If they want a real investment, they can invest in something else. If they just want to help you out, if they just care about you as an entrepreneur and are essentially giving you the money, then that's okay to take their money. At least then you have set their expectations. There's a very small chance you're going to get your money back and an even smaller chance you're going to get a lot of money back that we're going to be the next unicorn because that's how the numbers are. That's how the math works out. It's
0: just statistics. And speaking of taking money and funding, one of the groups that was talked about in your book was angel syndicates. Now we've actually never really talked about angel syndicates on this show. Can you share a little bit of details about the negatives and the benefits of this type of funded source.
1: Actually, taking money from angels is a really good thing. It's not like friends and family. If your company fails and you lose their money, you need a shoulder to cry on. But if you just lost the money of all your friends and your family, they're going to be crying and they don't really want to hear you sobbing about your startup. So, but angels, you know, they are, a, if they're accredited angels, if they are, Uh, professional investors and they have lots of money and they do this, then uh, they are in a much better position, first of all, to analyze your startup. And secondly, they're in a much better position to help you because they tend to be very experienced. How did they earn their money in the first place? They tend to have networks, the really good angels, the super angels, they have vast networks. They can make an enormous difference. This is why I tell entrepreneurs, you know, don't go to your friends and family. If, you, if your business is worth funding, you should be able to get angels to step up and, and back it. You just have to work really hard to get in front of those angels. And syndicates, what a syndicate is, is where you have a lead angel, a lead investor who does the diligence on your company to figure out if your startup is really worth investing in, if there are any skeletons in your closet. That lead investor does all the homework and that lead investor usually carries enough weight in the community to convince other angels to join him or her in the investment. Now, on websites like angel.co, which is Angelist, they actually have a structure where you can set up a syndicate, anybody can do this, and other people can follow on that syndicate, follow that investor in their investments. Those are very structured ones. And then there are also unstructured syndicates where it's just either an angel group, a group of angels that invest together or a lead that goes out there and recruits all their friends and their associates to invest in this company. What you ideally want is a lead investor who has a large following of investors. You can look on on sites like AngelList and actually see how much capital is backing that syndicate leader, which will give you an idea. In the industry, if you're in, let's say, Silicon Valley, an ecosystem, or New York, there are certain angels who have what's called a halo effect. Anything they touch turns to gold. Like they, All the other people, all the other investors, including later stage VCs, are all watching these magic angels, these super angels, to see which startups they pick. And then other people tend to pile on. That's how it works. And it's worth Your time to do your own diligence on your angels because the angel you bring in to run a syndicate is really important. Their status is going to reflect on your startup. So, if they have a lot of status in the startup ecosystem out there, the venture community, then that's going to reflect really well. If they are kind of the type of person that isn't that well regarded because of something they've done or who they are or how they present themselves, then that can actually hurt your startup. So, be careful with this.
0: So for that angel, say there's an angel out there, great reputation, you've done all your due diligence, you've checked references, everything turns out, this is a perfect fit. Should you give him some type of discount or anything to encourage him to be an investor? Or is there any way to give him that little push to pick your company?
1: Typically, when you get an investor in there early, there are a couple things you can do. Most of it, I encourage entrepreneurs to be pretty standard, not to give too many carrots to the early investors that the later investors don't get, especially if they follow right on, because then it's sort of like you bribed them, (laughs) you gave them X. So a lot of entrepreneurs do this, like when they really want to get somebody on board, they will sign a term sheet with them, which has one set of terms and all the other investors see that. But then on the side, they will give them additional shares that they won't really tell other investors about unless those investors really look closely at the cap table. And if they do, which they can ask to do, it can turn them off and it can make that you seem like, well, why are you giving them a sweetheart deal? And you're not giving me, I'm literally investing at the same time as this other investor. Of course, if there's been some time lapse, it's much later and you've de-risked the company substantially, then the terms can change. But within a certain period of time when you're doing, raising whatever your angel round or your seed round, whatever it is, I tell entrepreneurs, try to be fair to everyone. Think of it if you were another investor, what you would want. There is an exception to this. If that investor, let's say, can bring in a key strategic deal with like a corporation, they can do something transformational for your company that goes above and beyond what typical angels do, giving you advice and And helping you out and making introductions, but really, really add value that a normal angel wouldn't, then you can justify giving them those extra shares. Normally, when angels come in, they're already getting a discount. You're giving a standard discount off the price for coming in early. You're usually capping the valuation at a certain level. If the company becomes very popular and investors start rushing in and the value of the company shoots up, they hit that cap and they don't have to pay more. And that's their reward for taking a chance on you early. But that is usually distributed to everybody in, in, who's coming in on that round.
0: So for that, you said if a certain time lapses at, in order to de-risk the company, what would that time be? Or is it more based on the milestones that could be hit in that time? What would be enough things done to justify maybe that difference between this investor and that investor?
1: There is no firm rule about how much time has to pass before you technically do another round and raise the valuation of the company. I've seen companies do it literally within two months. They raise one round and then they're on to the next round and everybody's filing in. And how much can actually change within two months? Usually not that much, but some people do it that way. You know, They're like, we closed the first round, we're going for another and the value's gone up because we got in these investors. And now we're at a new level because we're capitalized. That's one way to justify it. A better way is when you hit firm milestones. You know, milestones, technically, it doesn't matter how much time has passed. What matters is what you accomplish in that time. But people do like to see time passing. You know, we're human beings, it's psychological. If somebody just invested a month or two ago and suddenly the, the value is doubled of the company, a lot of investors will feel like, what, what, what happened in that month or two? Well, maybe something momentous happened, like you closed a huge deal with Toyota or General Motors if you're in the automotive space, and that totally transformed your company. Yeah, that could happen in that time period. A lot could happen in a single day. So there are justifiable reasons. But you know, for nothing much to happen, you know, small things to happen just to raise money and then raise the round. Uh, most investors if it's been a short amount of time will balk at that if there's been 6 months they'll usually say okay i totally understand you know 6 months you must have made lots of progress but in reality what matters is hitting firm milestones you know have you closed a transformational deal have you gone from a beta to actually releasing your product on the market have your user numbers shot up has engagement you know really clicked did you solve something with the you know your users to get them hooked on your application, whatever it is, you a good justification for doing another round at a substantially higher valuation. You need to show investors why you're valued at this, what has changed in your business.
0: Moving along after angels, say you're getting an investment from a VC. There was a comment in the book about the number of boards that a VC is effectively able to sit on. What is that number? Can you tell us a little bit about your opinion of that?
1: Most venture capitalists are not limited by the cash they have, especially the larger ones. Like you look at some of these funds, and they're literally sitting on half a billion dollars that they have to invest in a short time. So they have too much money. But what they don't have is time, right? Time to actually analyze these startups, do diligence, really understand the founding team, where they're headed, the vision, and then also to sit on their boards because the more startups they invest in, the more boards they are required to sit on and think about your own time how busy you are how many how much time you know each of these board meetings it takes at least half a day you know it ends up sucking up at least half a day for you to sit on it and that's not including stuff you do for the company introductions you make meetings with the CEO actually trying to be more than just going to the board meeting and showing up and showing your face and you know voting up or down on certain things really responsible investors want to balance those out. So they value their time the most. And that's the reason when they don't invest in like hundreds of startups. Now you will look at angel investors like Ron Conway is a great example. He's a prolific investor, puts money in lots of companies, but he doesn't sit on the board of all those companies. He just puts money in and lets them go. And that's fine. You can do that. But when you take a board seat, you're taking on responsibility. You actually are legally responsible for the decisions the company makes, and that can wind up in a lawsuit or other things. So if you neglect your role as a board member, it can have serious consequences down the road. Also, you know, if you're a board member and you've spread yourself too thin, you're not going to be able to add much more value, right? You should be getting somebody else from your venture firm or whatever to sit on that board because you're literally going to be so unfocused, right? It's horrible. I've been in these meetings where board members are on their phone most of the time, right, talking, you know, and they're supposed to be in the board meeting actually listening to what happens and they're just, you know, they're they're zoning out because they're too busy or they're not being respectful. That is not a good thing. So when you talk to investors, they are looking at you as, you know, I can only sit on so many boards and you can imagine, you know, every how many board meetings, some board meetings happen. I've had them with startups every single month. Some happen every other month, some happen once a quarter, but let's say it's even once a quarter, you know, that's still four board meetings a year that you're committing to per startup that you sit on a board. You can run the numbers and see how much time you would have to do all that and all the other work that investors, serious investors need to do. A lot of investors will say, you know, I only want to be sitting on a dozen boards at a time. Like that's my limit. Others will have a higher limit. Some will have a lower limit, but it depends on the person. Who they are how much bandwidth they have, how some people are super energetic. They work day and night. So they somehow find time. They're the Elon Musks out there where they could start a, a half a dozen companies at once. Other people are more normal, like they want to have a family life and they, they don't want to like constantly be working there every breathing minute of their life. So they will reduce the number of board seats. So when you go to investor, be aware of this. They are going to be they're going to be very, the bigger investors of the bigger funds will be because they are required to be on the boards. That's part of the duty of them being the lead investor, the lead partner in the fund, that they are going to be very cautious about how many companies they invest in, which means they want bigger deals. They want to put their money to work. They want to put a lot more money in fewer companies so that they can sit on fewer boards.
0: With all these investments, with all this obligations and possible legal actions. I mean, lawyers are involved in so many steps, actually pretty much every step in a company's progression, lifespan, however you'd call it. What are some of the qualities a startup should look for in a lawyer?
1: When you go out to a lawyer, you have different options. So there are different types of lawyers out there. There are the super lawyers, the super network lawyers. And these lawyers are really more like connectors. Like their value isn't in the legal work that they do for you. Because honestly, a lot of people can do that legal work. Like a lot of it's boilerplate. And a lot of the real power lawyers in Silicon Valley won't even be doing the legal work. They will sand it off to associates, junior associates to do all that work. They might sign it. They might oversee it. They might get on the phone with the startup CEO and discuss it, but they didn't actually write it. They didn't actually do it. Then there are other lawyers out there who really Hands-on lawyers. These are usually smaller firms, boutique firms. When you engage with them, they're actually doing the contracts for you. A lot of the smaller lawyers, because they're spending their time actually doing the legal part, they're not spending their time networking. So they aren't as well connected. And also, if they're in a more boutique firm, they usually they are living off of everything they bring in. They don't have the buffer. They don't have a lot of people working for them, a lot of associates. So they literally a need to bring in cash. So the smaller boutique lawyers are awesome. Like they are totally awesome. First of all, they usually charge you less. Secondly, they do the work themselves. Thirdly, you get a really good relationship with them. And and a lot of them are really dedicated and smart. So, but you have to pay them up front. And that's, that's a problem for a lot of startup founders because legal fees are like, they're brutal. (laughs) They are brutal. And, the better lawyers you get, the more brutal they get. You know, do you want to pay $1,000 an hour? You know, is that, can you afford that as a startup? Some of the big firms, the real movers in Silicon Valley, the top law firms, they will defer the legal fees. They will basically tell you if they, you will pitch them in the same way that you would pitch a venture capitalist. You'll go into them, you'll run your whole dog and pony show, give them the pitch, and then you... We'll have to sell them. And if they believe after that pitch, oh, this company's going to get funded. These people are going places. They have something. Then they will often come to you and say, look, we, especially if you ask, we will defer the legal fees, meaning we won't charge you any legal fees until we close the next round. Usually the Series A, they do this before you have money. You're a small startup in the early stage and they say, well, we'll take the risk on you. You know, if your company fails and you don't get funded, then it's our loss, you know. But when you get funded, you have to use us. And also, they're going to be billing you for their time. And they're not going to be giving you a lot of discounts. If they are deferring the fee, they are charging you top dollar. So when the bill comes, it's going to be much bigger, a much bigger bill than you would get for paying up front. But it can be worth it. So I've done both ways. I've worked with boutique lawyers that I've paid up front, done an excellent job. But I, you have to have the cash right then. And I've also worked with the big guys where you pay them on the back end if it works out. And that's a good deal too, because like if you're closing millions of dollars, they can not only, because they then have a stake in your company, and in essence, they have loaned you this money, right? you know, which can add up to tens of thousands of dollars, even into a hundred thousand or more dollars that they end up doing legal work for you. They want to recoup. So they are motivated to make introductions. Like they are your partner. They are going, whereas the boutique lawyer, you're paying them. They're not, they're just not doing that because their time is, fa- a lot of the boutique lawyers, some of them will make introductions and just charge you for the time as you go on. Uh, but it can get expensive. You know, if they're making a phone call to a friend, they can talk to that friend for easily 45 minutes and then introduce you and you get billed for an hour or whatever it is. That's all, that's money. Just the introductions alone, especially from the power lawyers, can be worth the higher legal fees on the back end. Because in the essence, in the end, they can probably get you a higher valuation, more capital, and close around quicker. That's really good for you. So you have to weigh those things. And a lot depends on your personality, your cash reserves, and the level of your company. Can you sell your company to these power lawyers? Can you convince them it's worth
0: investing their time? That's kind of funny. The more you owe them, the more they'll help you out. Think about it. If somebody owed you a lot of money and they had to get funded to
1: pay you, you're, you're going to go. You're, you're going to give them that extra effort.
0: So, so a lot of this money though, it, especially for a lot of the tech companies is going towards patents. In a company's development, when do patents really matter?
1: There's a lot of people will argue a lot about patents. So the fact is, that most of the patents that get filed in the USPTO, most of them aren't worth the paper they're printed on, or they're not even printed on paper; digital these days. But they're not even worth that. They're not even worth those electrons, because a lot of the patents, patent office can't keep up. Let's face it; these patent lawyers in the government, they just get swamped. <laughs> and a lot of the patents that are filed are provisional patents, which means that you. Uh, they're not filing a full patent. The startups often just filing the right to file a patent later. Literally, you could put garbage in a provisional patent and get it approved. Like they don't even look at them. All it is is a timestamp, a reference, and then they come back to that when the full patent is written by a patent lawyer. If you get a patent lawyer and you can spend money on this, it can cost talk about a lot of money. Like it can cost literally more than the development of your software at an early stage. You know, you can do that. And I filed a lot of these patents. I had patent lawyers. I've seen the bills. And I work with startups that do. My advice to startups is there's two reasons to file patents. patent. Number one, file a patent if you have really deep technology, technology that has been researched for a long time. Maybe you have people on your teams that come from backgrounds where they've really uncovered something that is extremely valuable to your industry. A lot of times, these patents are in the hard sciences, things like that. That will have repercussions for years across that industry. Definitely file those patents. Those are worth the money. But if you're a software company, when Facebook started, they had no patents. When Twitter started, they had no patents. When Uber started, they had no patents. Did it make any difference? Honestly, no. Those businesses were gonna either work or they were not gonna work. And the patents weren't gonna make any difference, right? You could spend a huge amount of time filing patents and then find out your business model just doesn't work. Like and you literally, you spent a fortune. You spent, you know, hundred K on these patents and you could have put that into your product. It takes a huge amount of time, a lot of money for an early stage startup. And will it even make a difference? A lot of times the answer is no, because honestly, once you start getting money from venture, the hardest thing is to find the product market fit. That's what you should be focused on. Only I say for most software companies, you know, 90% or more. Only after you find the product market fit and you raise your first like, uh, institutional round of venture funding in the millions of dollars, at that point, start thinking about patents. You know, Then you can have money in the bank. You can hire real patent lawyers. Then you've already proven your company has legs and the patents start to mean something. When Facebook went public, they, the first thing they did with their money, they bought a lot of patents. So they just went out there and bought patents. People can buy patents. And patents will not make your business they will not kill your business what makes your business is making money like focus on making money first like if you make a lot of money you can go out and buy patents you can pay for patents all that stuff comes into place but if you aren't making money all the patents in the world they won't save you like usually you'll go bankrupt and whoever you owed money to will get those patents so i've seen that happen where they just take all your patents and you like i worked so hard but your business didn't work so it
0: doesn't matter i love that advice cuz So many times all all I hear is growth, 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 but you need that revenue. You need that actual sales, that profit to be that functional business later on. Question right there when things get tough. In your book, one quote that really stood out to me. If you want to win, you cannot give up when it hurts. That's when everyone else stops. You should run faster. Can you share a time when you ran faster?
1: At every point in every single startup I did, there was a point where I just wanted to collapse. Like, you know, when you're running that marathon, when you, you know, there's a point where you're just like, oh, I can't take another step. And you have to, you know, when you're out there, if you're an athlete, you have to push beyond that moment. You have to just push. you know, yes, you could collapse right there, or you can just push yourself harder. Then the pain does go away. The actual pain, you can actually overcome that hump, that moment when you just don't think it's possible to take another step. I tell startup founders, it's, you're not running a sprint. So don't like go out of the gate crazy and expect you know, it to be over quickly. You are running a long marathon like this is or a triathlon. This is, you're gonna go through many, many hurdles, many ups and downs. And you just have to brace yourself for that because that is the reality of doing a startup. Uh, many startups fail just because people stop trying. In Silicon Valley, we say fail fast, right? But by failing fast, we don't mean giving up. We don't mean, you know, when you get a hard punch, you lie down, right? We mean, when we say fail fast, we mean if the strategy you're working on, if the direction you're going is the wrong direction, if you are running the wrong direction, it doesn't matter how fast you run, how hard you try, how long you run. If you're going the wrong direction, you're going the wrong direction. You will never get there, right? You could just keep going forever. So when we say fail fast, we mean all we actually mean is change direction. Yes, you're going to hit roadblocks. You're going to bang your head against walls. You are going to get knocked down. But every time you have to get up, reanalyze, I'm going to keep going no matter what. And if I know I'm going the right direction, then I'm going to keep going. I'm going to plow right through this wall. And if I'm not going the right direction, then I'm going to figure out where I should go. I'm going to question and reevaluate everything I do and then start heading in that and going full force.
0: Now with going for full force, you know, everyone on the team has to be on board. How do you know when someone on your team is giving it 110%? How do you know that they're all in?
1: This is a headache so many founders have, like motivating their team. How do you get your team to really give it everything they've got? Because as one of the founders, as the CEO, you're giving it everything and more. Like you're putting your whole life on the line. A lot of times you've taken money from family and friends. And so those relationships are on the line. This is your life. Now your team, a lot of them treat it like a day job. They come there and then they go and they sleep at night. How do you get them to give it that extra thing you need to win, right? To really stand out. Because face it, 90% of startups fail. You know, why is your team gonna outrun all these other teams? What about it? I will tell you the number one thing you can do. The number one thing you can do is you need to figure out how you can get your team members thinking for themselves. You need to get them to make the decisions. And this is a hard thing. Like the CEOs, you know, you can't force them to do that. You can't make your team excited just by like being excited. Like I'm so excited. You should be excited. Or by being brutal, like you don't do this and you're fired, you know, the stick and the carrot, those things only work for a short period of time. Then they go back to the way they work. If you want sustainable engagement from your team, basically, I have a rule and it's really a great rule. It's whenever you engage your employees, your employees, do not tell them what to do. Like it's really easy for you to say, you do this, you do that, get it done. But instead of doing that, try asking them. Just go up to your employees for, try this for an entire week where you don't tell a single one of the people you manage what to do. You literally just go up to them and you ask them, what should you be doing today? What is our goal? How would you get there? And then you could listen to them and you will start to understand how they're thinking, what problems they have. All of a sudden they will start to engage because instead of just taking orders from you, they're actually having to come up with these answers. You know, when are you going to get this done? Can you do it faster? Like, how would you do it faster? How would I do it faster? I have to think about this. Is there a way to do it faster? My boss just asked me to do this faster. Is there a way to get the quality up? How do I get the quality up? What people do you need? What resources do you need? Continually ask them questions, gather this information, figure out how they're doing, and then look at how they perform. Ask them to commit to things that they might not even think are possible. You know, can you get this by next week, right? Can you? And if they say no, why can't you, right? Why can't you? You can do this all by asking questions. Then they start to think about these things. And at the same time, they're taking ownership because you're, you're not telling them what ideas to do, which way to do it. You're asking them which way to do it. How should we do it? How can we make our product better? How can we make our customers happy? Or how can we learn about the customer? You're asking them to do all these things. You don't have to come up with any of these brilliant ideas. They can come up with it. And once they tell you, once they commit to you, they are internalizing it. It becomes internal motivation instead of external motivation. So it's intrinsic versus extrinsic, really key. You want your employees to own this, to be looking to make these commitments themselves and then to want to live up to their commitments. Now, there are two types of people, two types of employees. There are those who really live up to their commitments. Like When they uh, make a commitment, they will see it through. They will do everything possible to make it happen those are golden, right? Those are the people you want. And there are those who will say things like bullshit, and then they don't do it. And honestly, you're never going to change them, fire them. Like get the people on your team who, when they make a commitment, they will do, e- they don't always succeed, right? Nobody always succeeds, but they will do everything in their power to make it happen. If you have those people on your team and you use my ask, don't tell way of management, suddenly. You create these super employees right? who are like literally telling you what they want to do, how they want to run the company, what goals the company should have, and then they, they want to prove to you, once they say those, that they can make these work.
0: Now, this asking the questions and letting them tell you everything, is, is that only for the C-level? Is that for VP and up? Is that for everyone in the company? How would that change when you go from five employees to 50 employees?
1: When you're managing employees, you can use the ask-don't-tell strategy for everybody. doesn't matter if it's the receptionist at the front desk. How can we manage the phone calls better? How can we make it more efficiently? How can we not keep people waiting? How can we not have those meet any missed meetings or whatever you want that person to do? How can we redecorate the office and make it nicer, make it more friendly? You can use that with every single person in your company. But you, as the CEO, don't have time to do this with everybody. So first of all, you're going to be doing this mostly with your key executives, the core executive team that you're managing. As you scale up, you can only have so many relationships. You know, Imagine Elon Musk. He's not talking to every employee in the company every day. It's just literally impossible. And he has many companies. So who is he talking to? He's talking to the key people in every one of his companies, right? There's a key team of people that he's getting together with, and he is facing with them. And those He's making sure those type of people are using the same strategy with the people under them. People will emulate you. If you're the CEO and you kind of set the tone of how a company works, they will take what you do and push it down. Also, you have to be sure when you hire people that you hire people whose management style and whose way of communicating works with you. Like There are different styles of management. There's no one way to do it right. Steve Jobs has his style. Elon Musk has his style. Bill Gates has his style. They're all different styles, but they're merits to them all. And when they pick their management teams, they make sure that they have people who are managing in a way that is highly effective. So that is your goal. You can be somebody, you could actually have a team of people with different management styles than your own, but if they're highly effective and if you can interface with them well, that's not a problem.
0: Speaking of emulating someone, in your book, you also mentioned the importance of having a mentor and doing anything to befriend that person. In your career, did you ever have a mentor?
1: I've had many mentors. And I will tell you, one mistake a lot of entrepreneurs make, and I made it in the early days, was not getting enough advice. You can never have too much advice. Like people say you can have too much advice, but that's just because they don't know how to sort through and filter the advice. But what you want is different perspective, perspectives that are not your own from people who have different backgrounds, different experience, different personalities, different ways of seeing and and acting in the world. And what you want is to see your company through their eyes. What are they seeing that you're missing? Really good mentors are people you can be totally honest with. If you have a mentor, if they're your mentor, the last thing you want is to sugarcoat it. Like make your company seem great. Make everything seem fine. Sell them on your vision because then they're not going to give you anything. They will just tell you, but you've you've basically told them only the good stuff, none of the bad stuff. So they're just going to nod their head and say, oh, everything seems great. You know, you're doing a great job. That may make you feel good, but it's not going to make your company even an iota better. So what you want are mentors that are, are straight shooters. They're going to tell you what they think, even if it hurts, and that you can be straight with because the data you put into their heads is the, is the quality of the feedback they're going to give you, it directly correlates to what you tell them. Because they don't know your business except by what you tell them. So if you're hiding stuff, if you're not telling them the full picture, if you're not showing them the warts in your company and the problems in your company, and they don't really understand the total picture, then they are going to be giving you back actually bad advice, right? Because they're going to think your company, they're going to, they're, the data is going to be wrong. So they're going to be, start assuming things that aren't true and the advice they give you won't be even correct, let alone valuable. So you, it's how you use the mentors that is important. And it's really getting a lot of different mentors that you can have that you can go to. And these mentors can be in different areas. Like you can have a marketing mentor, you can have a sales mentor, you can have an engineering mentor, you can have a management mentor, different people will have their different backgrounds and strengths. And you don't, I tell entrepreneurs at Space, you know, our accelerator. A lot of times we'll have mentor day where we do speed mentoring. We bring in a bunch of mentors and we have a bunch of startups and we tell each startup, you can spend 15 to 20 minutes with each mentor talking to them, seeing if there's a connection, if they like your company. And then you can connect with the ones you find really valuable. Now, a lot of times they'll spend more than that 15 to 20 minutes and they'll get a lot of advice from a lot of different people. So after two days of doing this accelerated speed mentoring, They will have so much advice. They'll come back to me and say, Captain off, I'm so confused. Like I got one person said this and another person contradicted them and said that and another person, what should I do? And I go, that's your job to get advice from all these different sources, synthesize it, think about it, and then try to remove your own biases. Pick out, not everybody's right because not all of them see all of your company, especially when you just meet people and they don't really understand the big picture. You have to then start to pick And if you're on the fence, if you can't tell if their advice is good or not, go run it past some other mentors. Take advice you got from one mentor and why they did this and go to another mentor and ask ask a lot of people, get more data points. And the more data points you get, it'll suddenly start to become clear what direction you should go.
0: How about instead of a mentor, hiring a business coach or a CEO coach? What are your thoughts of that?
1: In my mind, being a mentor, being a business coach, a CEO coach are very similar. Great mentors are great coaches. They're great consultants. They have value to give. Now, the difference is that when you mentors usually do it either for free or if they're like on your board of advisors, they're getting some equity in your company. But they're really, most of them are really doing it because they're passionate about your startup and they want to help and engage you. When you hire a coach, it's more of a transactional relationship. So you're paying them to actually come in. The good thing is that when you pay somebody they they are there like they are there for you like you know mentors are busy they're doing 100 other things they can't give you that much time you know if they're doing it for free especially you can't ask that much of them you get some advice you know here and there from different mentors which is great hopefully you pay them back with in kind services you're helping them out you're making relationships with them but they're not like somebody like a coach who you actually pay money and you can meet with like every single week You know, most mentors do not have time to do this, but a coach can literally do that. So they will serve a different function in that they will be there with you through thick and thin, the long run. They will, and if you pay them, they will put a lot of time into it. You know, they might spend a whole several days with you working through a really hard problem that a mentor just wouldn't be able to justify doing that. So that's the difference.
0: Can mentors solve issues? Say, for example, there's two co founders. Both want to be the CEO. I've seen this before where they're already pitching investors, but they haven't really figured out their roles yet. How do they decide who's going to be a good leader? Who's going to be a good manager? How do those conversations come about when there's two founders?
1: When I invest in startups, which I do a lot, I try not to invest in startups with co-CEOs because this is a nightmare waiting to happen. What is a co who makes the buck's gotta stop somewhere? Somebody has to make the final decision. If you have people of equal power in an organization, and especially if there's only two of them, not three, who's the tiebreaker? Like, how do you get these decisions made? And you're never going to make everybody happy. At some point, somebody's going to have to make a decision. So, I like to see a very strong lead CEO. However, I have been in situations where there are co CEOs, where there are partners that formed a startup and they haven't decided who the CEO should be yet. And they're trying to figure that out. And it can get really messy. But at the end of the day, I say, look at the skill sets. Great CEOs have certain skill sets. You literally, you have to decide. You don't do the co-CEO thing. Figure it out. What, who has what skill sets? You know, The CEO needs to be a really good leader. Like You're not going to build a company if you're not a great leader, meaning you have to be able to communicate well, you have to be able to get people on your team to believe in you you have to be able to sell investors on your vision you have to be able to sell key customers you know transformational customers on your vision you have to be able to sell the media and the press on the vision of the company this is the ceo who has these capabilities who is the best person in the company of maybe these two co-CEOs to fill that role other roles somebody is more technical somebody is more operational Those might be better for a COO or a CTO or another C-level position that isn't the CEO. So really, I encourage before I put in my money, the entrepreneurs to figure this out. And if they haven't figured it out, I would be happy to give them a recommendation after getting to know them of who should be the CEO. At the end of the day, they have to agree on it. It's their company. And if they can't even figure this out, they're going to have much bigger problems down the road if they can't figure out who should be CEO.
0: So say these decisions are made, say a lot of people start joining the company, how do you kind of decide how much equity should be given out? Should you be generous with the equity or not? And if you're generous with all the co-founders and the first employees, how does that affect later rounds of capital raising?
1: There's a rule of thumb in Silicon Valley. You know, when you are rewarding employees, you create a stock option pool. It's usually 20% of the capital. And that should last you a significant period of time, let's say a year, year and a half, before you deplete that pool and create a new stock option pool, which means dilution for everybody. Problems tend to come not in the later stages where it gets formalized like that, but in the earlier stages when you have, when the startup is at the very beginning, the CEO is bringing on people as co-founders, other people to help out. Maybe they're not committed full-time how much equity do you give them? There are no guidelines. But in general, in most companies that I look at as an investor, at founder space, I like to see a CEO who has substantially more than the other employees. Now, this isn't always true. Sometimes it's three founders who start the company and they just divide it up equally. But generally, the CEO has more. The later people join, they get usually exponentially less, like less and less and less. Of the company, and it can only be like six months later that they're getting significantly less, and it's still early in this the life of this company. But that is the way things typically work. Now, I tell as a rule of thumb, entrepreneurs, be generous. Don't hoard your equity. It's more important than you having a ton of equity in a company that may go nowhere. Is having the right people on board. So do what it takes to bring the very best people into your organization. Honestly, at the end of the day, for most of these startups, either you are going to be incredibly wealthy, like it's going to, you're going to be the next big unicorn or decacorn out there, or you're going to have nothing. And that's just like, it's usually binary. Usually the startup, just your equity is worth zero or a lot. And the difference bringing the right people on makes is enormous. Having the right team from the beginning, can make the difference between having a startup that goes nowhere or a startup that really takes that idea, develops it, runs, and wins the game. And I will tell you, the companies with the best teams, not the best technology, not the best ideas at the beginning, because ideas are pretty fluid. They can change all the time. But the companies with the best teams end up winning. So when you fight, I say, go out there with your equity and buy the best team you can. Then your equity will be worth something.
0: So say a company has a lot of struggles, they've been at it, they've been hustling, they've been working, and an entrepreneur comes to you and goes, Steve, Captain, I think it might be time for me to quit my startup. When do you say, yes, it's time? Or when do you say, no, 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 keep going, run faster?
1: When an entrepreneur comes to me and says, should I quit? Should I quit this startup? I usually tell them, absolutely, absolutely, you should quit quit today. Do it. Why would I say this? Because I'm somebody who says, never stop. Always keep going. Fight to the end. Honestly, with most entrepreneurs, the last thing they want to do is quit. It's their baby. They don't want to quit. So if they're coming to you saying they're thinking of quitting or they're asking you to quit, it means the writing's on the wall. They know this company's going nowhere. It's like Sisyphus pushing a boulder up a hill only to have it roll back down You know, when startups aren't working, that's what you are. You're just pushing this boulder up a hill and it rolls back down on you. You push it up and it rolls back down. You have no product market fit. You've tried everything, it's not working. So the entrepreneur is usually the last person who will tell you they want to quit. When they come to you, I say, yes, absolutely quit. And by quit, I don't mean stop being an entrepreneur. I don't necessarily even mean fold up that company. What I mean is totally change direction. Like you are going in the wrong direction, whatever you're doing is not working. You need to quit doing that. Whether it means shutting down the company or, you know, taking the team and doing a total restart, a pivot, whatever it is, you need to do that and you need to do it today. Because clearly, you wouldn't be coming to me with this problem. You wouldn't be thinking of quitting. You wouldn't even cross your mind. In fact, most entrepreneurs, they fail because they stick with an idea too long. They stick with it so long that they literally run out of money, run out of energy, run out of everything, like motivation and then the company just dies. Really good entrepreneurs, when they see it's not working, they're just like, I'm quitting this, and I'm starting something else. This isn't working. And they try lots of different things as fast as they can until they hit on one that just goes. When a company goes, you know it. I've had companies that go, you're not pushing that boulder up the hill. You're, you can't run fast enough to keep up with that company.
0: And with that, say you get that company that's just taken off. So you got the right team, How important is having the right advisory team to that team?
1: Having a really good advisory team attached to your team throughout the life of your company is critical. And this is why they have board of advisors, why you have board of directors too, is to really give you that objective view. Because no matter how good you are, no matter how great a start you get out of the gate, the world is constantly changing. Technology is changing. There are people out there. There are other startups out there. There are big corporations out there. They are not dummies, right? They are adopting the very latest technology. They are pushing on the market. They are adapting to market changes. And if you aren't able to adapt to these changes, you aren't able to see what's coming next, you can get blindsided and wiped out. Happens all the time with startups. They think they figured it out. They think they have a product market fit. Everything's going great. And then suddenly the floor drops out. I've seen it happen. With startups, there's like a company called OfferPal where they were like doing these offers for in the game market where you could play a game and earn virtual currency by accepting these different offers from basically advertisers. And then all of a sudden that market just went away. It just, it just evaporated. And their whole business model, they had to pivot. This happens all the time in Silicon Valley. The reason to have an advisory team, because you guys usually like when you hit it, when you get product market fit, you put these blinders on and you're just like, go, go, go and you drink the Kool-Aid, you believe in what you're doing, you believe in it so much, you're so passionate about it, that when negative information comes across your plate, you're just like, forget it. You know, you, you just discard it. We all have these biases. They're called the confirmation bias. It doesn't match what we already believe. We just, we discard it. So that's what the advisors are there for. They're there to, for you to actually trust them because you have this relationship and you have to train yourself to listen to them even when they're telling you stuff that contradicts what you believe to be true.
0: Steve, this interview has been absolutely amazing. If anyone wants to find out more information about you, what's the best way to go about doing that? And actually, if you want to plug your book right now, this is the best time to do it.
1: I just launched Surviving a Startup, published by HarperCollins. So it's out there on Amazon and every other bookstore. You can type in survivingastartup.com and go there, or you can go to Founderspace. And if you want to contact me, if you want to reach out to me, if you have a business plan and you're an entrepreneur, if you want to engage me for some sort of activity, I'm I'm always, I love it. Just go to founderspace.com. There's a contact page there. You can contact me. And if you put my name, they'll forward it to me. Or you can go to any social network and search for Founderspace. Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn, you name it. Search for Founderspace. I'll be there.
0: Fantastic. We'll have that information in the show notes. And with that, Steve, I have to thank you for your time today on the Silicon Valley podcast. I can't wait to get you back on the show. I mean, so many books you're, you're writing. I've got a feeling we'll see you in another year or sooner. What, what are your thoughts there?
1: Definitely sooner. <laughs> because I love being on your show, Sean. I really do.
0: Fantastic. All right, Steve. Thank you again for your time on the Silicon Valley podcast. Thank you for listening to the Silicon Valley Podcast. To access our resources, visit us at theSiliconValleyPodcast.com and follow our host on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at Sean Flynn SV. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decisions, consult a professional.